Welcome to the first edition of the Populist Papers, where rogues and scoundrels gather unlimited motivation and vitality as we beseech the invisible chiefs to help guide you on a journey of subterranean enchantment where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. All right, this is The Populist Papers. I'm your host, Colin Kramer, and thank you for tuning in to episode six. You can tweet to me at C-L-N-K-R-M-R, also Gmail me at that handle, or join our Facebook group. Could be fun. So today's theme is female supremacy. And I've got a really amazing guest lined up for you today. Before we get to that, though, I want to mention one thing about girl power. Wonder Woman. I uh, I went to a little lecture about William Moulton Marston. And it, I think a lot of people know that he was sort of a uh, perverted psychologist that was really, really into S&M and had based Wonder Woman on... A lot of the erotic pinup art that he had been seeing in the 30s and 40s. However, it's a lot more esoteric than that, as most things are, if you take a closer look. Now, William Moulton Marsden did help invent the lie detector. Um, he was way ahead of his time. He was the grandson of, I believe, a Navy, uh, a Navy admiral. And that admiral had five daughters. Four of them were spinsters. I know that's not a weird uh, word that you hear a lot of these days. I mean, you can be 20 years old and be a spinster, technically. But um, things were different back then. Um, one of his daughters managed to have a kid. That was William Moulton Marsden. And it was such a big deal that the four other daughters, spinsters, all kind of helped raise Marsden. So already you have a picture of this guy who's being raised by five doting women and that might help explain why there was a big women's empowerment theme throughout his life, right? Now, um, Marston had a pretty unconventional domestic life. There was one woman that he had a couple of children with and they all lived with another woman uh, that he also had two children with. They raised all four children to believe that the first woman, I'm sorry, I forgot a lot of the names, was their mother, and that the second woman, I guess more of the mistress, was their nanny. But get this, there was a third woman living with them, and she was a librarian, really into witchcraft, who lived up in the attic. If anyone was homosexual in this story, it was most likely the librarian. And it turned out she actually had previous connections with Olive Byrne and Margaret Sanger because she was involved with the suffragist movement. And remember, uh, Margaret Sanger and Olive Byrne were the ones who uh, helped create birth control as we know it. If you watched Boardwalk Empire, you know those were the people that were making that bottle available that Kelly McDonald was drinking. Um, because it was being given away to all those Irish immigrants at the time. Now, uh, Marston's mistress, that second woman we mentioned, she was actually the daughter of Olive Byrne, making her the niece of Margaret Sanger. Now, she actually hated 
her mom and her aunt because they kind of abandoned their children to go uh, traveling around the country in support of the cause. Um, they hooked up with different men that were kind of willing to finance the cause, which was great. But also, um, these people had really fucked up personal lives. And mind you, this is like the 1930s and 40s when there was a good chance of having your children taken away if you were seen as too radical or too weird. Um, you know, these people had a huge interest in magic and the occult. Uh, Margaret Sanger was like obsessed with phrenology, apparently, and some other kind of weird stuff. So for the sake of the cause and women's rights and birth control, they kind of prioritized those issues and hid a lot of the other weird stuff or esoteric stuff or sexual stuff or magical stuff for the sake of safety. Now, you could tell that Marston, and I'm sure he had a lot of help creating Wonder Woman from his family, you can tell these people were really on the cutting edge of their time. Um, just read through some of the old Wonder Woman comics from the 40s, and you will see it's so steeped, not only in the politics of the time, but also these people were obviously reading the most radical scientific journals of the time. They were keeping up with the occult. You could tell that they were experts on the writings of Dion Fortune and Alistair Crowley. And seriously, there are a lot... I mean, this is only a radio show, so I can't show you too many images, but I've got some issues here, some of the originals where they talk about how thoughts are things. They form into manifestations, right? This is really new age stuff. And they were talking about it in the 40s. So you could tell they're obsessed with magic and progress and this issue of the divine feminine. They were also pacifists. There was one issue where Diana Price, uh, Wonder Woman's civilian identity, of course, she had a friend from the Amazon come out and visit her. So she decided, hey, let's go to the cinema. And her friend is horrified by how violent the films are. And this is in the 1940s. Imagine what those artists would think of the state of cinema today, let alone the adaptation of Wonder Woman. Whew! So here's another trippy thing. It turns out they even had meetings. And some of the meeting notes have survived. We know that they spoke of the nature of submission and domination, the nature of wisdom. Here's the sad part, though. DC managed to get control of these meeting notes. It's in their archives. It's kind of clear that they don't even know what to make of them. You know, that's another big problem these days is uh, a lot of people in power don't seem to like doing their homework. You know, they're just playing the cards that they were dealt and they're extremely busy. They don't have time for all this uh, silly magic stuff. The hours and hours of determination self-betterment and intense research might be might be a little bit outside of their schedule limitations and i just think it's so amazing that even though that comic was really only written it, it really only existed from 1941 to 1947 because think about it after that it descended into sort of romance novels they put her in a pantsuit for about 10 years and took away all of her powers um but they kept it going you know, obviously that's something DC is good at doing, keeping their serials going, but it's something more than that. Wonder Woman embodied sort of an archetype. 
She's iconic, and that's why even 75 years later, little kids recognize Wonder Woman with the ease of Superman or Batman. She's just as recognizable, and maybe even more powerful. She is Isis. She is Diana. She is Columbia. And a lot of people don't realize the founding fathers, like Jefferson and Washington, actually invoked the goddess Columbia when they went to war with Great Britain. That's another reason we got Columbia Broadcast Systems, the District of the Goddess, which is the District of Columbia, um, Columbia, Missouri, Columbus, Ohio. It's probably those most popular names of cities besides Springfield. And it's not just because we were invoking the goddess. Um, obviously, it wasn't just because Christopher Columbus set foot here. I mean, come on, Leif Erikson beat him to it by several hundred years. So it was about the divine feminine, right? And also, it was a way for us to distance ourselves from the true founders of this country, Great Britain. It was like, uh-uh, boo-boo, some Italian guy got here before you, so we got nothing to do with Great Britain, and that's why we can go to war with you. This was more of a thing in the 1800s with the War of 1812, um, making Columbus into a federal holiday. Uh, again, we were doing everything we could to try and distance ourselves and uh, sever that connection that we obviously have with Great Britain. So the goddess Columbia and Diana Price. It's powerful stuff. Oh, even Betty Page basically just ripped off Wonder Woman. I mean, look at her. I actually got to give the White Witch of L.A., Maja Daoust, credit for that one, who facilitated the lecture where I got a lot of this stuff, by the way. So really, really interesting stuff. And I implore everyone, instead of going out and seeing some Hollywood fluff just for the sake of seeing it, maybe spend that time you would have spent going to the movies and dig into some of those old Wonder Woman comics from the 40s. Then you'll really see what's up. And don't worry, even though that's kind of all I have for now, we are going to do a special episode that focuses on the archetypes of comic book characters, a lot of the symbolism found in the issues, and also the nature of mythology and how comic books and video game characters are replacing a lot of the old myths and legends and even religions of the past. You know, I went to City Hall just about a week ago for the tribute to Adam West and Batman, and they actually lit the bat signal onto City Hall. Mayor Garcetti and even the chief of police encouraged everybody to show up to downtown LA in costume, and I thought that was so cool. And the energy, I mean, it was probably as much energy as you would feel going to a Catholic mass at its peak. So we are going to be talking about how a lot of these figures of comics and video games are actually replacing figures of religion and spirituality. So tune in to that. Now, this is a little bit funny. The very next night after I went to Maja's lecture on the esoteric origins of Wonder Woman over at the Steve Allen Theater, I wound up checking out DomCon L.A., so I was a little bit girl-powered out for a while there, but it was totally worth it because this issue of female supremacy is something that I think we all need to investigate further, and it's a story that I think has a lot more to offer.
So uh, I'm going to bring on somebody I met at DomCom uh, right after this break. Stay tuned.
I am very excited to have on the line president of MIB Productions, Domina Irene Boss. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's great to do this, and I'm happy to be here. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I usually like to talk casually for a while first. but I don't you... mind talking casually a little bit first. It's okay if that's what you're used to doing. We can do that for a little bit. Cool. Um, yeah. I just know it is a little bit late over there, so I didn't want to take up too much eh, of your time. It's 9 o'clock. It's not really that late. It's fine. That's the right attitude. Cool. Yeah. So how's... I, I don't go to bed particularly early, so this is fine. Okay. So you're more nocturnal than diurnal. Not really. I um, I my schedule changes a lot, so I'm not really a creature of habit. There's times I will stay up till two, three, four in the morning, and I get excellent ideas because of probably because of that. And then there's times I get tired and I go to bed at midnight. How about you? Yeah, I'm kind of all over the place too. Um, there, mm -hmm. it, yeah, you just got to do whatever works, and I think it is good to switch it up so that we don't get too monotonous or mechanical. So there probably has something exactly. to do with yeah, the creativity. Yeah, I think artists get a lot of their great ideas late in the evening. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and go, Eureka. You know, I keep a pad and paper by the side of my bed because I, I get great ideas sometimes at ridiculous hours. And I write them down. That's great that you do yeah. that. Yeah. Also, there's something about sort of the clarity of nighttime. You know, mm -hmm. it's quiet. You can focus. And... Also, you know, academics started talking about second sleep. I don't know if you've heard that term, mm -hmm. but yeah, basically mm -hmm. they decided back when we were less dependent on electricity, people went to bed twice. Mm -hmm. There was that period, usually around like three o'clock in the morning, and we would usually like drink uh -huh. or visit with neighbors or something like that. So it makes sense uh -huh. that a lot of us still wake up in the middle of the night and wow. you know, these drug companies. Yeah, and you know, I, rem I remember being a little kid uh, even kind of uh -huh. having this issue, it was really hard for me getting up on time for school because I would always be Oh, up. me too. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, had just... a, I could not do mornings. Yeah, when I was a kid. <laughs> and do you remember these darn drug commercials? They're like, are you tossing and turning in the middle of the night? There's something oh, yeah. wrong yeah. with you. And it's like, no, it's in our nature. I think so. And I think, too, because I enter sunambulance when I do yoga, I get a lot of rest that sleep doesn't even necessarily give me. So the whole thing about necessarily needing eight hours, I know we used to get nine or ten hundreds of years ago, but I think with modern electricity and all of that, you know, people are lucky you get five. I try to always get seven, but because I meditate every day, I, I work out about two to three hours a day, I get a lot of rest when I do savasana, and I don't think I need as much sleep because of that. Right. Winston yeah. Churchill yeah. had some kind of system like that. He just took frequent breaks or rests yeah. rather than yeah. actually sleeping for any chunk. So somnambulism, I'm curious about that. I feel like I haven't heard that since I saw Cabinet of Dr. Kiligari. <laughs> <laughs> well, somnambulance is an altered state, and I get into it when I do yoga. And you feel like you're kind of asleep, but you're kind of awake, and it's a really, but you're in a haze, um, kind of like a zombie, but it is really good for you to enter this state at times. And I think... Uh, some people are able to enter it through BDSM. I'm able to enter it through yoga, but I find that it calms me down a lot. It takes care of a lot of high blood pressure, stress, all that stuff. I kind of keep that at bay with my practice. So, yeah. So, you know, like some people get into this Zen or trance state when they get a really heavy whipping or having flogging. 
some people who are really athletic get into that state when they, uh, like I go to the Grand Canyon a lot, I like to hike, and I like to do extreme exercise. So that's my balancer. That's kind of what I do, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we all figure out ways to balance ourselves. I've been a dom for 22 years, so that's how I stayed in it. I figured out a system that works. Wow, it almost sounds like a witch putting herself into a trance. (laughs) To conduct a spell or do a ritual. (laughs) Well, it is um, the practice of yoga. A lot of people think is a cult. I don't necessarily feel that way, but there are some forms of it that are very culty. I don't practice those, but I know what they are. Uh, And then BDSM is also compared to a cult sometimes because it's an alternative lifestyle and a subculture. So I guess I do have a lot of interest in that kind of stuff. But those two worlds, yoga and BDSM, are very different. But I've been able to learn a lot from yoga and bring that into BDSM. So I've learned a lot about human energy and all kinds of different things that are hidden through yoga. And I've been able to bring that into my BDSM practice. So it's my practice is a lot different nowadays than it was when I got in. Wow. Well, that partly explains why you're so good at it. Having that kind of cross. Well, I'm different at it. Yeah, I'm different at it. Um, I know a lot of really excellent practitioners, and there's all different styles of DOMs, and I think that I've come up with something very unique, and it fits my my studio. I have also a very unique space. I have a 13-room house that I've converted into a BDSM studio. Half of it is used. There's playrooms and other things, but... You know, I walked up on the porch of it in 1997 and looked at it, and I got lost in it. And I thought, this is the house I have to have. So this all this came together then. So wow. I started in 95, but bought the house in 97, and it was my first big project. And now I have another place out there in California. So the reason you saw me out there is I have another studio out there now. It's a very different studio. Okay. so But what... this energy I have, I wouldn't have been able to do all of this if I wasn't doing what I do to take care of myself. There's no way I could do all of this stuff. Sure. So, yeah, um, yeah. can I ask why 13? Does that number resonate with you? As far as 13 rooms? What do you mean? In, uh, you said you had 13 oh, rooms. Oh, no, no, but I noticed you asked me 13 questions, and we're going to do six of them tonight. Isn't that funny? <laughs> uh, no, it just so happened that the house had that many rooms, and uh, I thought it was really curious, and there were a whole bunch of people looking at it, and I got really jealous, and I wanted all those people out of the house. So this is mine, you know? I just got really... <laughs> and it was, a, it was an absurd proposition to take it, because I didn't even have enough stuff to fill it up, but I filled it up within about a month, so I became a BDSM hoarder, and the rest is history. Now, I, <laughs> I have a, a fantastic studio, and uh, ladies come here from all over the world and visit, and... My, my guests are a little bit spoiled because they get to experience a lot of different styles of domination because I have uh, lady friends who come here and also do appointments. It's kind of fun. Oh. So it's just stem dom. There's no other types of domination here. So it's kind of unique. And, and people try to change it all the time. You know, they can I rent it? Can I do this? Can I do that? I'm like, that's what my place in Orange County, California is for. Go do that there. Ah, okay, <laughs> so there's still room for your more interdisciplinary background, but you've kind of compartmentalized yeah, I, I, what I did was I kept Pittsburgh compound really uh, femdom, and I developed a space out in California that's more open to the lifestyle community to do what they want to with it. They can make movies there, they can use it for classes, they can have sessions, they can have parties, because uh, people asked me for years if they could do that here, and it's not practical at my place in Pittsburgh. But out there, I've got the parking and everything else, so I developed a space for them, and that's kind of how all of that happened. And I figure in California, it makes more sense to have a space like that. 
Right, right. Well, and yeah. out here, kind of what you were talking about earlier, having that um, cross-disciplinary expertise, there are so many people who, you know, it's it's what they call almost like Hollywood witchcraft. You do this, you know, for a little while, then you do uh-huh. that. So yoga's fun uh-huh. for a while, then maybe BDSM. I um, grew up in the goth scene, <laughs> so there was always a lot of crossover, obviously, between, you know, oh. the dom scene and the goth scene. I had a boss for a while who was really into the gay scene, and I'm like, oh, okay. that's that's cool. That's where we would meet. That would be our bridge between our two worlds. Yeah. Would be like, you know, the the crazy BDSM clubs or something like that, like perversion. or it's, it's So it's mm-hmm. interesting, you mentioned that, that in California, it's kind of like where all those worlds can come together. Yeah, I'd actually like to develop my space further in California to become something more about different types of holistic BDSM therapy incorporating yoga, which is something I could not do in Pittsburgh. I don't think it would make sense here, but I think out there it would. So there's going to be some changes to that place happening in the next few years, which will be kind of interesting. Oh, right, right. Now, I got really interested in BDSM when I heard about the Bob Flanagan story. And yeah, for so did people, I. I loved that. Yeah. I, I That just really resonated with me. Yeah. And yeah. just for any listeners who aren't familiar, um, I'm sure most people have seen that Nine Inch Nails video. Was it Happiness and Slavery that he did? Mm-hmm. It was like just crazy, crazy, you know, CBT. And if you can imagine it, it was in that video. And they even did like a censored version so they could play it on MTV. And they were still like, whoa, that's still way too intense. Sorry, boo boo. Um, but Bob Flanagan was the guy <laughs> in that video. And apparently that was his life story and he had cystic fibrosis so he was in chronic pain Mm -hmm. like daily Mm -hmm. and um yeah can you kind of take it from there well i have had clients who have had graves syndrome which is a neurological disorder and they like to be electrocuted because it helps them feel things i mean there's people who are attracted to do this for these reasons that you're speaking of not necessarily to get off or even be kinky but just because it makes their body feel better and their brain feel better to do this activity so there is some cathartic release that can happen with conscious bdsm these aren't the vast majority of people who play but there's people who are attracted to this for that reason yeah well, sure. I mean, and that's why we have medical research and psychological research, mm-hmm. because you know this isn't for everybody, but these things are going to come up and, you know, people definitely yeah. need more options. The thing with Flanagan, it sounded like because he was in so much pain, it's not that mm-hmm. this is a w- was a way of just loading on even more pain because he learned to like it. It was a way to sort of... He was making himself high. He was creating his own opiates in his body by releasing endorphins and serotonin and all that good stuff. What he was doing was putting himself in a trance state. And his body was forced to step up. People can also do this with fasting, with other types of extreme activity. So what happens is your body is like, i got to do the best I can because you've got this thing going on, this thing that you're challenging yourself with. And he used BDSM for that. I mean, he had her hang him upside down and beat him on the back, and that would bring up the phlegm, as you know, and the other issues. And he would also have her do very extreme sexual things to him that would get his opiates and endorphins going in his body, the natural ones. So I think that um, they had a very special connection. And I know that she was a little misunderstood by some of the people in his nuclear family, but that un- that happens in BDSM. There's a lot of misunderstanding that happens when the vanilla world and the BDSM world collide. But I don't know if you know this, she was at DomCon and uh, gave a talk. 
also um, oh, what was her the name? Bob Flanagan present? The Sherry Rose. The Bob Flanagan presence uh, was at DomCon. I'm sorry you didn't get to see that. I think you would have enjoyed that. Yeah, I was kind of in and out yeah. of there. You know, I could only stay. Well, all right. It was yeah. a fast thing. You know. Yeah, but I'm glad that I got to meet you at DomCon. So absolutely. Um, you know, just, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I I also wanted to ask because it, it was so funny. We started talking because I was looking at one of your videos and I was you know mm-hmm. kind of being facetious, but I was like, hey, shouldn't strap on have a hyphen? And you gave me the best response. You were like, or I was like, is it one word? Is the jury still out? I don't know. And you were like, that film was made before there was the internet. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, what was it like? You're you're one of the few that kind of, you know, got to live through and work through that transition. Um, well, I can remember when I started in 95, uh, um, we still had pagers and <laughs> cell phones. I know cell phones were not something that people really used too much. They were very heavy and expensive. And I had one, but it was a pain in the butt. <laughs> It was and the then 90s. everyone would use voicemails. Yeah, it was hilarious. Everyone used voicemail then. Right. And then the magazines got bigger and that it was easier. You didn't have to have a letter sent third party and then to you. And then the internet started slowly crawling along, but a lot of people didn't really trust it. So in 96, I said, well, I'm, I want to try this. I trust it. So I... I probably had one of the first femdom websites on the internet. It was OWKNI. I don't know of any other ladies who did. There might be some of them, though. I mean, you can just get on Who Is and look up anybody and find out how long they've been on the internet. So I don't want to say that I was absolutely the first. I'm not sure, but I know I was probably one of the first because I had friends who were gearheads and, and engineers, and they loved the internet. So I didn't even do my first website the man who did my website was a cameraman for Channel 4 News who used to film the football team no. in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and he had this really squeaky tripod. And in my first videos, you can hear it going, <laughs> you know, when he goes to a different scene. And we just kept it in there. We didn't care. It was VHS. It didn't matter. So my first films were made with my houseboy at the time. And he was 58. And I was in my mid-30s. And everyone thought he was my husband because we had this role play going on where it was like, Irene's husband is being spanked. <laughs> so it was very New West Lita, that style of corporal. So I started out as a domestic disciplinarian, and I had this great sob who was actually smaller than me and weighed less. I could pick him up in the air. <laughs> and I'm not a big person, so this was all very hilarious. So he was just a total spanko. He was a marathon runner, a lovely person. And he was in my life for quite a while. And then after um, a short period of time, somebody took over uh, the filming uh, from Kevin, who used to do my filming, and also ended up um, editing, and I ended up doing my own website. So I'm probably one of the few doms who still does her own website. Wow. Just because it's, it has, I think it has a better feel, and if there's a mistake or a problem, I can fix it because sure. it's mine. I know how to do it, and I know I should probably get it into WordPress, and I will eventually. I keep saying I need to do it. So now I'm saying it right now. I need to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's that ties in with your dominant personality. You're really taking charge. You're taking ownership of – you're almost like Wagner. You know, it's like you're, you're writing the score, you're doing the website, you know, it's like you're Well, I always had a joke because I get asked by my distributors when I go to Venus Fair in Germany, they would say, how many people in your company? How many people? <laughs> 
And I would joke around. I'd be like, there's two of us. We're a two-man band. We're like the Eurythmics, you know, me, Sushi King, me, everything. We do it all. And that's we kept it really, really small, but that's why it survived. Because now I'm running the place in Pittsburgh, and George is running the place in Orange County. Okay. So we're like a team. And he does all the editing and the shooting, and I do the websites. And we interface. But if we get in each other's way too much, it doesn't work. So it's actually working rather well. We see each other every few months, but we're very good friends, he and I, so we're able to make this work. And I wouldn't call him a submissive or a slave. He's a fetishist. He's more like a voyeur. So he's very good behind the camera because that's his thing. He enjoys that. Mm -hmm. And I like to get behind the camera, too, but he and I, we have the same eye. So we'll go to take a picture. We figured out early on. We're taking the same damn picture every time. I'm like, here, you do this. You want to do this now. Yeah. You know, I got to do this for years. So you talked about, um, you know, wanting to know some of the things I did before I became a dominatrix. Well, one of the things I did was scientific photography for archaeology. I used to work for the University of Pittsburgh mm. as an archaeologist, and that was one of my jobs. And I would go on digs. And I didn't have a degree to get this job. I had a degree. I didn't have an anthropology degree. But they hired me because I went to the library and I got a whole bunch of books. And I brought them into the interview. And I said, I'm going to read all these books in the next few months and I'm going to learn this. And they're like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I moved from Montana to Pittsburgh without a job. I mean, um, and I thought, what am I going to do with myself? So I wanted to go back to school. So this was in 87 and decided I wanted to do something totally different. So anthropology interests me, so I went to that. So before that, I had worked in the hospitality industry. I was somebody who sold wine and shots and food, mm. and I had that job for a while. So, you know, I wasn't really very good at that, but it did teach me to organize my brain. I'm a disorganized artist, thinker type. I'm all over the place. Hmm. So that job really helped me learn how to organize. So I don't regret doing that. It was very hard. And a couple of times I jumped back into the hospitality industry in between school and the next job or the next life. You know, I would jump into other things. But being a dominatrix, I stayed with the longest. So it's the longest thing I've done. I've also been an art teacher for the city of Pittsburgh at times in the summer. Um, I've done uh, creative writing. I have a minor in written professional communication, so that's something I've learned how to do. Oh. But being a dominatrix stuck with me the longest, so that's what I do. I've become a career one. I never thought I would do that. Okay. Well, so, that's, that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah, and I have a lot of experience in college, but I didn't want to become a professor, so I was kind of headed in that direction with art, and I didn't want to become a professor. I talked to a lot of people who were and I, I just didn't hear anything that made me really jive on it. I thought, I, I probably should work for myself. So I stumbled into being a dominatrix after I went to school and decided I didn't like it. I did one semester. I went hiking in the Grand Canyon, and I thought, I need to change my life. I need to do something meaningful. I need to do something different. And that's when I decided I'm going to go into the adult business. And I really wasn't sure what I was going to do in the adult business. I just knew I was open-minded. Mm -hmm. And I'd always had kinky fantasies. So I tried this thing called, this is funny, nude behind glass. Okay? <laughs> nude behind glass. <laughs> nude behind glass. It's like um, 
a very weird kind of experience where a person goes into a room and there's another person and they're behind glass and they talk to you and relate fantasies to you. And all of these men that I would see when I did this wanted me to dominate them. I also tried exotic dancing, but men wanted me to dominate them. I just brought this energy out in people and I thought maybe I could be a dominatrix. So being a dominatrix isn't really something I said, oh, I'm going to be a dominatrix. I got chosen to be a dominatrix because this is what people kept greeting me with. They kept saying, and maybe I made them comfortable so they could open up and tell me about their things. So, for example, I would work in a strip bar, and men were bringing me long handwritten letters with their fantasies. Well, that's a slave. <laughs> that's what slaves do. And it's, you know, asking me to torture them and do little things to them and telling. And one man wrote me a long letter and asked me if he could move into the shed that was near the apartment I lived in. So I was attracting this energy uh, in the adult business. So I kind of steered myself that way. But I never thought this is what I would do. So I have an interesting life that just kind of came together that way. And I had a set of circumstances that happened and the stars just lined up. And this is what I was supposed to do. <laughs> and my family knows what I do. I'm out. It's not a problem. Uh, it's not for everyone. In fact, when people are really young and they want to get into this field, like women who are 20, I say, are you sure? Because after you do this, it would be hard to do something else because you can get judged for this. This isn't something that uh, society necessarily views as, you know, a sensible occupation. You have to be a certain kind of person to do this. So what I find hilarious is I've become the person other people look up to. I never thought that would happen. Oh. Like young women, they're like, I want to do what you do. And I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> right. What else have you done? Because I did things before I did this, you know. Well, are, are there any so things I, that you're catching them? Like, they're just doing too much too soon. I mean, are you finding a lot of faux pas? Like, they're getting into it for the wrong reasons a lot of times? No, I think that it's just I never thought I would be that person that other people would use as an example. Oh. That's what it is. It's just so I'm, I, I want to give them the right advice. I would never say, oh, yeah, you should do exactly what I do. No, do your own thing. You know, the way I got into the business is so different. It was 20 years ago. The way entering now is, you know, starting out, it's it's far different. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure when people are new to this that they, they thought it through very carefully because even just doing this a year or two can alter the rest of your life. Oh, absolutely, especially now. In a way that you, yeah, a way that you might not want it to. So it's a, not a decision to be flip about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sort yeah. of like getting tattoos, you know, people don't realize, you, exactly. you know, you're applying every yeah. job you're going to apply to in the future. They're going to see those pictures on Facebook. They're going to think it's gang related. You know, they always just kind of jump to the negative. And um, yeah. yeah, there's really no privacy if you put anything online. It's not like the old days where you could have like sort of alter ego. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and yeah, I feel like a good tattoo. You, you have to. Um, it's funny, the last one I got, I, I had something totally different in mind, and then I just had a vision mm -hmm. come to me while I was taking a walk, doing some bilateral uh -huh. therapy. I love walking. And I'm just like, no, 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 I'm going to completely change this. And it's almost like uh, what people say when they have some kind of spiritual calling in life. It's like, hey, we didn't choose mm -hmm. it. It chooses us. Yeah. So, so I wanna... this kept choosing me in the adult business. I kept getting chosen by people to do these things to them. They kept asking me. 
I didn't have any experiences where I wasn't asked. (laughs) So I kept getting asked to do this crazy, kinky stuff. And I thought, there's something here. And then my artwork, my artwork before I entered the adult business, my own family was telling me, okay, that's a penis. That's a butt. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's hills. It's this. It's that. And I'm like, my family is religious. They weren't, you know, they're not kinky. They, they were seeing this stuff in me. And I was expressing it. So a lot of my artwork was abstract, expressionistic, kind of sexualized landscapes. And when you look at them, someday you'll have to come over and see my dungeon. It is like an art gallery. Sure. You can see um, CBT. You can see nipple torture. You can, you can see all of this. I didn't see it. Oh. So it well, kept it getting brought up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's some projection, so. too. Interesting, isn't it? So yeah. you have there's this expression called the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. <laughs> I think it's in, you know very likely that some of the people in my family history were also kinky. It's fairly likely. That's pretty much how it is with us, you know, as people. Um, we have things in common with each other in our nuclear families over the years. So I think a lot of what happens to us young, when we're young kind of dictates what's going to happen later. And if something keeps getting presented, sometimes you need to listen. So I think I'm somebody who belongs in this, from what I'm telling you. I'm somebody who's happy and adjusted and is making it work. But I don't think that's necessarily for everyone. Right, right. Yeah. So when you can yeah. turn it into something healthy, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's, and interesting. it's a struggle. It's a struggle to keep it positive sometimes because there's a lot of shame that gets brought to the table that people bring here. Basically, you know, when you're a dominatrix, you're also a shamanatrix. You're taking these things away from people that are that are, you know, weighing them down energetically, that are making them feel bad, you're changing their energy, you want them to feel better at the end of the experience. Well, they're leaving something behind when they go. So you have to be conscious of your vibes, your aura, uh, what you, what you bring to them. You have to be conscious of because human beings are very sensitive. So one of the things I always do before I go into scene is I make sure I'm in a good headspace. Mm-hmm. If something really bad has happened or some crazy emergency is going on, well, I got to do something to get right because I have somebody coming into my space that I'm going to be interacting mm-hmm. with in this very extreme way. And you wanted to talk about psychodrama, so those are the ones I worry about the most. The people who want the really extreme role plays, you've got to be careful. You don't project negativity onto them mm. because they've all, they're already bringing in some baggage. So you want them to leave their baggage, and then you burn it, and it's gone, and that's how it is. It's not a situation where you want them to leave feeling worse. So that's one of the things that's changed about me a lot. I used to practice a lot of humiliation-type things because people wanted to do that with me. And I've gotten less interested in that. Now I I feel it's more of a cathartic experience to live through this event rather than get your shit and get out attitude. When Mm -hmm. it's over, I want them to be able to look at me and I want to look at them and we're going to be okay with each other. I want that. I don't want them to feel like crap. And uh, there are people who want to feel like crap after they play. They're out there. But I prefer to not have that around me anymore. So mm-hmm. I have changed that way. And I think the yoga has influenced me to become more positive. Okay. So it's sort of like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, therapists have to go through so much intense training to make sure they're not taking on, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of that garbage that's being dumped on them in their sessions. So this is really Yeah, a therapist right. taught me how to do this. A therapist taught me how to suit up and suit out 
and I read some very interesting books about Andean mysticism and other very interesting things about uh, human energy. Um, I can send you links to some of these books if you're interested. And Absolutely. some of them were so scary to me. I, I read a few chapters of it. I'm like, I have to put this down. I can't read it anymore. One of them was called Masters of the Living Energy, and it taught me how human beings can communicate without even speaking, and it was fascinating. And it is a hard read. It is worth it, though, if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Yeah. And it talks about all the indivis- indivisible things and the things in the shadows that we we know they're there, but it's like, you know, the elephant in the room. We know it's there, but we can't deal with it because it's uncomfortable. Well, a dominatrix deals with all of that stuff all the time. People don't really think about that. They just look at the floggers and the handcuffs and the triteness of it and the Fifty Shades of Grey, but they don't see what we really deal with. We're dealing with people who are basically asking us to be some type of a shaman for them. Mm. Energetically, we are taking that on. And so if you break it down into its simplest form, um, it's asking for an energy change is really what it is. So everything is just props that the dominatrix uses, their tools, props, whatever, to get where you need to go, but you don't need any of it to do a scene, really. I'm just somebody who has acquired a lot of props because I'm a collector and I like things. So I have a huge amount of props here for the things that I do to enact these psychodramas, and I have to say most of what I do does involve some kind of um, um, very intense psychological aspect. Almost every scene I do, I don't really do very many that I would consider bland or light, uh, when I say light, that doesn't necessarily mean, um, um, what, how can I say this when I say light? <sighs> no marks or marks or however you want to put that. There are people who can play without being hit. Hmm. Uh, bondage people, for example, um, okay. they want to be a bottom. It's about being a bottom. It's not about being necessarily a masochist or a slave or a submissive. So it's all, it's purist. It's being tactile. It's having things done. So that's very activity-based. Then there are scenes I do with people who want to become an other self, um, and cross-dressing would fall into that, or being an extreme fetishist. And then there are the corporal people, and they're a variety. You know, they're different. Some are whipping, some are spanking, you know. Um, But the very extreme scenes where people are being hit evoke quite a bit of energy. And that's where it can get negative, and those are the people who struggle the most with what they're into and why they're doing it. They go through the most hell. Uh, The people who go through the least amount of hell are probably the bondage bottoms because they're pretty well adjusted and it's me, 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 me time. You know, it's just fun, floaty time. Uh, But some of the other players, they go through a lot of hell. And dominatrix role is to help them through that. And some spankos, for example, are into life adjustments and attitude adjustments. So they're seeking out the dominatrix as the school of tough love. So a dominatrix is a person that feels all of these things that people want to do, and one that's been at it a long time is probably doing it fairly similarly to the way I do. In the beginning, people are attracted to you probably because of the way you look, you know, when you start out in any aspect of the adult business. If you stay in it and if you start getting skilled at it, then they start getting interested in you for other reasons. Right. Yeah. So where I'm at, I'm more of a... Um, my approach is more psychotherapeutic than sex work. Though people do feel sexual expression in sessions, they it's not for the purpose of getting off. 
they get off from the session itself. Just the whole experience to them is an orgasmic experience. But it's not the way society usually sees it. And you know the difference. Sure. You know what I'm talking about. Right. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the shame yeah. aspect you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And I yeah. do. I think so many people confuse it. They don't realize. They just think, "Oh, dominatrix. It's something to get off with." But uh, yes, prostitute. I, yeah. That's last I checked, thing. Nevada. And it, I used to think that. <laughs> you know what? I thought that. Right. My, my before I became a dancer, my friend was a dancer. I'm like, "You're a prostitute." And then I became a dancer, and I go, "Oh, a dancer isn't a prostitute." And then I heard about a dominatrix, and I'm like, that's a prostitute. And then I became a dominatrix, and I'm like, nah, it's not a prostitute. Well, I, mean, so <laughs> I think some of it, too, is a matter of perception, and it's how it's presented and how you feel about it. Sure. Because last wow. I checked, Nevada was the only state where you could legally exchange sex for money, and there's dominatrixes mm-hmm. working legally, obviously, in a lot more states than just Nevada. So there's obviously a lot more dimension to it. Now, I like where you're going with this as as a session being kind of a, a place for confrontation, right? Because it's mm-hmm. amazing mm-hmm. what people will go through to avoid confronting themselves. You know, I see these kids doing mm-hmm. psychedelic drugs, and they're going to raves, mm-hmm. they're going to parties, and I'm like, why don't you, like, sit in a dark room and figure out your life? If you're going to do a drug like that, you know, we did um, just Mm -hmm. two podcasts ago, we did an episode Uh called A Theater in Your Mind. And it was about how the theater has historically played a role as sort of a forum for confrontation, you know, to sort of bring Uh these things forward that we're not uh, otherwise talking about. So but this is interesting. You're talking about the use of props. You know, and mm-hmm. sort of this this uh, acting out the psychodrama. I also have a little bit of a background in magic, and I've done okay. a, a lot of different pagan rituals and ceremonies. And I gotta tell you, a lot of the people who do magic ceremonies tend to have an anthropology background, and they tend to say a That's lot of this. Yeah, a lot of the same things that you're saying, um, just along the lines of, "Hey, you don't need a magic wand, but it helps." It mm-hmm. might help enhance yeah. the psychological experience, but it's really about our human energy and sort of just, mm-hmm. you know, figuring out how it works and, and ways of heightening it. So do you ever feel there's sort of a pagan aspect? I mean, obviously, there's the goddess worship. There's this divine mm-hmm. feminine aspect mm-hmm. to the work you do. I mean, do you ever feel like sort of a, a pagan priestess? I have felt some of what you're talking about when I've done outdoor events and I've been around the people who identify themselves as primals. They build fires. They do their scenes. They have their ceremonies. It's fascinating. I love it. I think you can get that at Burning Man, too. You can get that same energy. And BDSM people go there to experience that. In my studio, most of the people I play with are very focused on traditional femdom, so some of this stuff would probably scare them, the idea of (laughs) paganism and all of this. Um, I know some ladies who identify as Satanists who are dominatrixes. So I'm someone who was brought up a very strict Catholic and got more interested in Buddhism because it kind of jives better with what I do, though I do acknowledge the Catholic religion. I don't say I'm an ex-Catholic. I'm a, um, probably a typical Catholic girl. I became a dominatrix, but I have an interest in, um, in Buddhism and in other religions. So the whole pagan thing to me is fascinating, um, but I don't feel I get to really explore that here. I have felt that, though, elsewhere. Mm. So for me, for some reason, for me, I get more... Um, um, 
I just I interface with that better when I'm in a place where I'm around more like-minded people who are actually consciously saying this is what we're doing, you know. Interesting. As, as an energy exercise, yeah, as an energy exercise. Whereas in my studio, I feel like what I do is quite traditional. So part of the reason I travel a lot is because I get to be around a lot of other things that are BDSM-related, um, and um, BDSM people go to these things. So that's part of the reason I travel, is to be around all these different types of, of energies. So... I hope I drew that in somehow and made some sense with it. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I like it. I mean, I feel like even the foot fetish thing is kind of pagan, okay. wh whether or not people talk about it in that sense. Sort of like how you were saying um, a lot of these energies people are experiencing in sessions, um, even though they're not getting off, even though they're not having mm -hmm. an orgasm, it can still be sexual energy. It can still be orgasmic, yes. which is almost like... What do like... you think the word pagan means? I think it would help me understand um, it a little bit if you tell me what you feel it means. Uh, I would say earth worship. Uh, worship okay, worship that makes sense to me. Earth. And when you say foot worship, I have a very interesting story to tell you about. Oh. I, I've had over 20 years of energy therapy, by the way. I've, I'm not ashamed to admit it. It's done me a hell of a lot of good. <laughs> One of the things my therapist would tell me to do when I needed to ground myself was take off my shoes and go out and stand in the grass and just feel connected uh... to the earth. And he and I would talk about who the healthiest people were on the planet, and he was under the impression it was the farmers because they work with the land. So they're the most well-adjusted people on the planet. And depending on how close we were to the land, and this is very fascinating to me, and his his um, um, interest in domination, he felt the foot fetish was the strongest uh, of all the experiences because it is intimate and the woman's foot touches the ground and for a man to want to be down there with the feet of a woman marks that as the most primal domination experience someone could have. So I think he was a pretty enlightened, evolved person. I wouldn't say kink-friendly, huh. but I learned a lot about how to do energy tapping therapy from him. I, I did it to myself. I've got through a lot of difficult things in my life using that system. And um, it was interesting having a vanilla person as a therapist for a very long time that wasn't necessarily accepting of what I do, but it kept me very grounded because it was a person that was in another world from me, the vanilla world. Right. So, yeah, so I, um, I did that for over 20 years, and it really helped me a lot in many situations and also helping other people. I've actually turned people on to the therapy that I've had when I didn't think anything else was going to work for them. And, and I think that's a good, that's a good human thing to do. Um, for people, if if you think they need something and they can't get it from you, uh, well, show them where they can get it. And that would be out, like doing the grass exercise you mentioned. No, um, the tapping therapy I did. Oh. I did um, a very special type of therapy that was called energy therapy okay. for many years. So the grass exercise is just something that I'm using as an example of um, you know something I learned about how to be grounded to the earth and. The whole pagan thing having to do with being grounded to the earth. So right. the person I talked to for many, many years uh, was really into this concept of how domination and the whole foot thing is, is related in being grounded. Right. Um, so it's just an interesting parallel that you talked about that, and I had this experience. So and yeah. I'm not in energy therapy now, by the way, but it's something I might go back to someday because it does a lot of good. 
great. I'll have yeah. to look into yeah. that. And and sometimes it's cool I'm going to send have... you a link about it. Yeah, I'll oh. send you a link about it because it, it, you're interested in all types of different holistic and therapeutic yeah. things. So I think you'd find it interesting. Oh, yeah. Please do. And and it's great to get that yeah. vanilla uh, point of view. Sometimes just a little academic, you know, confirmation that, hey, what we're doing isn't absolutely crazy. Some of this is rooted, you know, these traditions are there for reasons, you know. And uh-huh. A lot yeah. of the stuff does yeah. go back, you know. We used to act out, you know, different characters. We used to pretend to be animals. A lot of these things, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's funny. We think of them as a fetish, but you know, hey, it's part of our nature. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of traditions. Yeah, the foot thing, though, Um, just one more thing about it. There is something about, you know, you're lowering yourself. There is that connection to the mm-hmm. earth. And, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like it's almost an extension of earth worship. And it's mm-hmm. it's... Yeah, like you talked about earlier, that exchange of energy, and it's kind of a power Mm -hmm. shift. And this is what brings me Mm -hmm. to my next question, more kind of about Mm -hmm. the female supremacy aspect. Now, Mm -hmm. I said paganism is more earth worship, but a lot of that Mm -hmm. has to do with, um, I think, a return to a more matriarchal kind of culture. And I think that's interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, the the, the Catholic girl is still part of you. I mean, in Catholicism, there's heavy emphasis on Mary. And there's still sort of mm-hmm. those remnants of the, the worship of, of the divine feminine. So what do you think? Do you, mm-hmm. d- does a lot of this fetish stuff have to do with maybe a, like a, a collective or subconscious yearning for a return to a more matriarchal society? Well, I just realized something. No one's ever talked about the fact that Mary usually has bare feet. <laughs> the oh. statues and the paintings. Right. Yeah, I just realized that. Yes, having been in so many Catholic churches, museums, and institutions over the years, yes. Wow. So, so a return to matriarchy. <laughs> yeah, a return, a return to matriarchy. Um, I feel that we live in a patriarchal society, and I think that female domination is popular because of this, because it's that shift. It's that paradigm. It's the other And I feel like it's more popular in certain parts of the country where women have even more traditional male-female things. The woman is even more traditional as far as not working and being in the home. I think there you will find an even greater interest in female domination. So the whole idea of wanting to return to a matriarchy, I think there's something else ahead of us that's that's even far different. because I think the way we are right now uh, is probably going to stay like this for a few hundred years at least, maybe a few thousand. We're pretty rooted in the way things are right now. And we only really have one matriarchal culture. I think it's in the island of Madagascar. Hmm. Um, And it's interesting the way men behave um, in that culture because they preen, they dress up, they make themselves attractive for the women, the whole thing. It's hilarious. Um, but I will send you a link to this too, if if this interests yeah, I, you. I actually have a documentary about maybe a tribe not. that. Well, oh, okay, yeah, I, okay, I've got maybe, a. Well, okay. I mean, this could be a totally different tribe, but that is a common thing. I know sometimes the women and and yeah. a lot of Native American tribes had systems where the women got to choose the husbands. So yeah, it's it, the well, you know, a lot of American, on. a lot of American Indian tribes also had uh, polyamory and other things going on that makes a lot of people uncomfortable nowadays. But I find the BDSM community has grabbed onto those things. Bleep. Mm-hmm. You know, those odd things from, you know, from primitive uh, history. So I look at female supremacy as a fetish in BDSM. It's not something I practice 24-7. It's, um, I view it as a very extreme style of domination 
and it is the hardest one to maintain because it is the most militant. So I'm not a female supremacist. I know women who define as that, and that's great. That's what they are. I have been to the other world kingdom uh, 11 times, but I still don't define as one because it's a place I visited to act out very extreme psychodrama uh, with people, and we would do this for four or five days at a time when we would go there. So we basically used the other world kingdom as a backdrop to do it. It wasn't we were going there to practice what we always practice. We went there to do something very specific. So it was kind of a place and time that my people and I would borrow from. So that's female supremacy to me. I look at it as kind of like a fetish in the field of female domination, but you can also look at female supremacy in a different way, not even related to BDSM, as something else, as some kind of a cult, I suppose. And I think OWK kind of borrowed from both things, the BDSM thing and the cult thing. And I don't know if you're familiar with them or not. I was very involved with them for a long time. No, but I'd love to know more. Okay. Okay, the OWK is a a, a place in Brno. Um, uh, Zlin is the town name. In Czechoslovakia, someone bought a huge tract of land and redeveloped some buildings and created a complex, and it was called the Other World Kingdom. And it's a place where people could go and live out extreme femdom fantasies three to five days in a row and be around other like-minded people who want to do this. So if you think about the Society for Creative Anachronism or a Renaissance Fair, it's kind of like that, but you've got to add the, the, the time, the intensity of it, and the fact that people were coming from all over the world and congregating and doing this very extreme thing. So it had some of the ritual of, say, Burning Man, right? Mm -hmm. But it also had some things that were very unique because nobody else was doing it. So I had that experience very early on when I was a dominatrix. I would go to this place once a year. This is very heavy ritual here, and I would take a field trip of three to six men and meet my friends there, and we would live this out, this female supremacy role play. And by the end of the few days, it would get intense. It would start out, oh, I don't want to be around another man. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. By the third day, the fifth day, Everyone wants to be together. Everyone's cool. Everyone wants to have marks. It, it's bizarre what would go on at this place. Wow. And no one has created a place like it since. Uh, I don't think anyone ever will. People try. But this is an example of what the BDSM community did to have something very extreme. Um, and it had to be where it was because... In the 90s, nobody really cared in that part of the country what was going on there. Yeah. Uh, but it also crashed and burned because of the Internet and progress and the wall coming down and everything that happened over there with regards to capitalism. So it was just a very interesting place and time, and I wanted to give some of your listeners some information about this. So I'm somebody that's actually jumped into some of these extreme femdom things and, and did them pretty seriously, but, you know, only for about three to five days at a time. It's not something I do 24-7. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to state what the differences are um, as far as how I view things and how I define. So I don't define as a goddess either, for example. I don't feel like I am. I mean, I've been to AVN and people have come up to the booth and they've said, you're not a porn star. And I go, no, no, I'm a personality. So I've <laughs> never really defined as the typical things um, I could say I'm a dominatrix, 
and that would work for me, or a domina, and domina works for me because it has a little more panache to it. It's about someone who has found their own style by doing this over the years. But I wouldn't, I I have a problem with the goddess thing because it's so misused with the fin doms now that it's become something that isn't taken seriously as it should be, which is a shame. So there's some offshoots in professional BDSM now that some of us, aren't real proud of, but we kind of watch it, and we go, okay, okay, we're doing this now. Maybe this will pass. Is this a bad little phase for a little while, you know? Uh, Because now you can do domination on the Internet without even having a person in the room with you. You can just take money from people. Right. This idea is kind of, it's abhorrent in a way, and it's, (laughs) it's not, yeah, it's not what this is supposed to be about, but it is part of the world. So the whole goddess thing, unfortunately, has gotten scrambled into that now. I don't know if you're aware of that, mm-hmm. um, but it's a shame. But that's and maybe it will change. I don't know. Maybe it'll just it'll implode on itself. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. And then the words can be used for different things again. So how we use words in BDSM can be very confusing because we all use them differently. Yeah. 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 It's well, good it's, to be clear about it. It's a way to to construct reality. The magic of language. Yes. Yeah. A long way. I've always kind of considered myself a peripheral person as well. You know, I love going on these kind of thrill-seeking adventures, and and it gives you a chance to stay current in your field, see what's going on. But, you know, I always come back to home base, sort of. You know, I don't really immerse myself too far in anything. Um, So you're you're a bit of a renaissance man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like Tim Leary (laughs) said, you know, uh, turn on, tune in, drop out come back a social scientist of sorts and i what i find interesting about your podcast is you're talking about a lot of different things and this is just a part of it it's not it's a bdsm podcast entirely so it's interesting for me to be a part of this study because um the way i look at what i do has changed over the years and i think it's good to talk about that right absolutely and that's what we were talking about bringing it into the light and kind of making it something positive and i do love how it overlaps um, you know, like I said, the gothic culture is just one of my mm-hmm. prime interests. So I love uh-huh. uh, exploring, you know, the whole spectrum of it. So, And um, that made BDSM more palatable. The whole gothic culture made BDSM more palatable because it made a caller a kitchen word. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I love yeah. it. And, and Domina, yeah, I like your choice of words. It's a, it's a very pretty word. And um, that, yeah. one last thing about female supremacy, it, it is strange that, uh, like, if you know the play Lysistrata, you know, the old Greek mm-hmm. comedy, it's sort of like, oh, women may not be in charge, but they actually do rule the world because they have that sexual power. So in the end, yeah. men will always, you know, bend to their will. So it kind of is interesting how it works on different levels. But um, well, so, do you know what the word domina means? Oh, well, not exactly. It's a a female landowner in Roman times, a domina. (laughs) Yes. So I I liked the word. Um, And if you've ever seen the HBO series Rome, uh, the way they use the word domina is fascinating, and there's a lot of BDSM references in it. But the BDSM community loved the series Rome because of that. So (laughs) I think that popular culture has caught on to us most definitely. We are marketed to like crazy um, you know, uh, especially um, musical artists have caught on to the whole BDSM oh, movement, so definitely. to speak. Yeah, R- yeah. So we, we exist. 
but we are also hidden. We are gray. Uh, so being a dominatrix is a gray market business. It is neither legal, but it is neither wholly also considered illegal. It is a strange tightrope type of occupation. If you keep everything caught up and you file your taxes and you're not too obnoxious and you're not doing things to put you on the map, so to speak, in ways that are very negative to society, you're probably going to be okay. But unfortunately, we do hear stories about things that happen when somebody has a mistake or a slip-up. Um, and then it gets, um, you know, it kind of gets, how should I say this, villainized to a certain extent. Right. And then BDSM is used in very sensational ways in mainstream films. It still is. And I don't think that's ever going to change because it's too much. It's still a naughty, naughty, you mm -hmm. know. So a lot of people think, oh, it's cool to be a dominatrix, but they don't know what all is involved. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, a lot of things are involved. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Well, there's a lot of things in life that are easier to get into than they are to get out of. Um. Oh, that is true, too. You're right. Yeah. You're right. Are you finding that you're getting a lot more female clients? Um, we we're talking about the paradigm shift, and I know a lot of women yeah. are taking on more of those high-pressure corporate jobs. Are you finding more women are finding the need to be unburdened with your services? Yeah, I do see a lot of women. And more than you... Probably come to me because I'm, I've been doing this for a while. So a lot of ladies say, I'd like to see more women. And, I, and those of us who have been doms for a while tend to attract them because women notice a lot more than men do about some things. You know, they're very detail-oriented. I can tell you this, if a dominatrix has female clients, she cares about what she's doing. Um, I'm not saying that men um, are not detail-oriented. That's not what I'm saying. But the way women approach this and what they want from it, it's not the same thing. And they notice things that men don't. And their play styles are not the same. So I'm, I don't treat men and women differently, but what they come to me for is different. Mm. What they expect from it is different. What they get out of it is different. So I would not say that male and female clients are the same. And then I also play with people who are transgendered and transsexual. Uh, I have played energy, with people. Right? Yes, I have played with people more frequently who are male to female, but I've also played with female to male. Interesting. Yes. So I've played with just about every sexual orientation you can imagine. I've <laughs> played with gay male couples. I've played with gay female couples. I've played with uh, husband and wife team where the wife was dom and the male's a sub, but I've also played with two subs. And once I know people pretty well, sometimes they feel comfortable coming in and doing a switch session as a couple. So the couple will come in and half the session, one is dawn, the other half, you know, <laughs> so they do that. Right. And that's fun. That's fun. So I've done the gamut that you probably can with this. And I have to say that it's all good, but you get more of it when you have more experience. So you get more women, more couples, more experience pays off because these people don't want you to mess with their relationships. They also, um, you know, they got to take this away with them and they've got to be okay with it later. And they're going to pick a more experienced practitioner to do that with generally. Mm. Um, though newer people to this business do sometimes see women in couples, it's much more common when you've been doing it for a while. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So, so yeah. what's the best way for listeners to keep up with you? Well, I'm on the go a lot. I travel around. I have a website. It's pittsburghdominatrix.com. So where I'm going to be is generally at the top of that page. I'm also on Twitter um, and Facebook. Um, and I've been teased that I break Google when people put my name in. I think that's really funny. So <laughs> if you enter Irene Boss or Domina Irene Boss, you get a lot of stuff. So the best way, though, is my website, pittsburghdominatrix.com. I have a membership site that's been around forever. That's called domboss.com. And then I have a DVD site that's called bossdvd.com. So I have a few sites that I've kept up over the years. Excellent. Well, we will be sure to check them out. Uh, Domina Irene Boss, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks. I had a blast talking with you. It was wonderful. You're very interesting, and I'm going to send you an email with those links that um, I discussed during our, our interview. All right. Please do. We'll take care. Okay, okay you too.